All right. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for being here tonight. Um, we are up to lesson eight now. Uh, God's gracious word. I think we are over the halfway point, so we're, we're getting there. And, and we're really getting into, I, I don't want to say this to make it sound like what we've gone through isn't important now. I mean, we've covered Jesus, we've covered God, we've covered the most important things. But the next couple of lessons, we're going to look at the Bible, um, and then the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion and absolution. Um, so some some really important stuff coming up too. So excited to go through that with you. Um, lesson eight, God's gracious word. You see an introduction there. Just in case you didn't know where these titles came from. You've heard them. You know what they are. Um, atheism is is uh, the belief that there is no God. Uh, where this comes from is the, 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 the word in Greek for God is theos. So think of theology, right, is the study of God or the study of God's word. The way that you negate a word in Greek is you put the letter A in front of it. So you and I negate words in English like 30 different ways. It depends on what the word is. Um, you can put, you know, uh, loving, unloving. Um, you know, if something is possible, it could be impossible. Um, this is why uh, English is an impossible language uh, to learn, because um, we've got a number of ways to, to do that. But in Greek, the way you negate a word is you, you, you put the letter A or the letter alpha in front of it. So theos, God, atheos, no God, right? That's atheism. Um, similar to um, agnosticism, which is similar, but not the same. Agnosticism, um, the word uh, uh, for wisdom or knowledge in Greek is gnosis. And so agnosis is no knowledge. So an agnostic is someone who says there might be a God, there probably isn't, but no one can really say for sure one way or the other. We don't have the knowledge right? To be an agnostic. That's, that's what it means. All right. What's interesting is um, atheism and agnosticism, I would say those are probably, they're growing in popularity, at least if you, you, you trust people, what they say, um, but they're still nowhere near the majority um, in America and certainly not in, in the world. Uh, but what's even more interesting is if you look back throughout human history, there has never been a culture that was completely atheistic. Every culture, every different part of the world throughout human history, they've always had some sort of God. Um, or you look at the Greeks and the Romans, they had tons of gods, right? There was a God for everything. We're going to talk a little bit tonight in the beginning as to why that is. Why is it that there really has not been a culture in human history that has been fully all in on this idea that there is no such thing as God. Um, so here's our lesson aim. We are going to uh, study or discover the reason why people around the world, various times and places, recognize that, that there is a God. And then we're going to learn three ways that the true God has revealed his existence to mankind and what each of those three ways tells us about God. So how does God make himself known, right? We're going to look at three um, specific ways that God does that. Um, to get us started, we're going to look at the, the topic of the what we call the natural knowledge of God. And to do that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. If you want to look it up, find a Bible there in front of you, pull it up on your phone. Otherwise, I'll read it. Um, that's okay. And you can just listen. 
Uh, the picture there that's in your notes and also up on the screen um, is a picture of uh, an idol or an altar. It is the altar that is uh, kind of labeled as the altar to the unknown God, which is what the Apostle Paul stumbles across in the book of Athens, right? And it's just another one of those examples where like archaeology, they dig up and find something that, oh, this fits with the Bible, right? Um, this, uh, this altar idol was discovered in 1820 on uh, Palatine Hill, which you remember the city of Rome, much like Jerusalem, was a city that was built on seven hills. And the centermost hill in Rome um, was Palatine Hill. And that's where this was discovered. It's dated back to the first or second century. Um, and literally the inscription on it says, it is to either a god or a goddess. No name, no specifics, just again, this is kind of the unknown god, right? Um, we don't really know who this is to, but we were not convinced. And this is going to be the interesting part. Despite all of the idols and altars that the people in Athens had built, their streets were lined with them. They still had to build an altar to a God that they did not know. Why? Because despite having countless gods, they still were not convinced that they had reached all of them. Right? It was almost like there was, a, there was an itch that they, that they just had not yet scratched. We'll talk about why that is. All right. So Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. The Apostle Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, we're going to talk about who they are in a second, began to dispute with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. All right? A couple of things um, to make note of. We referenced early on the, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers um, that meet Paul there. Just a, a little kind of brief summary of who these people were, what the kind of the core of their beliefs were. Epicurean philosophy is basically that happiness is the supreme good. Um, this sort of later kind of, um, you know, fell into eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of thinking. Um, I, I would say that in many ways, this probably best summarizes our post-postmodern culture, right? I mean, you, you think of what is the justification for nearly everything these days? So long as it makes you happy and doesn't hurt anyone else, then it's good, right? Um, and that's kind of the idea. It, maybe it's a little mishmash of the two, actually, because if you go down to, to, the, to the Stoic philosophers, um, what guided them was kind of be reasonable, use your head, right? Um, whereas maybe a, an Epicurean uh, philosopher could very easily become an addict to some sort of pleasure, right? Um, a Stoic philosopher would say, well, look, that thing can be good if it makes you happy, if it's pleasing to you, but if it takes over your life, well, use your head, right? Um, do things, um, uh, do things um, that, uh, that aren't going to kind of control and, and ruin your life, right? So, so very, very, uh, um, we, we still kind of say this, right? If we talk about somebody who has kind of a Stoic look on their face, Right. What do we mean by that? Well, somebody who looks very serious, you know, somebody who's very calm, someone who's using their head, right? Somebody who's very poised um, in, in, a, in a certain situation. So those are some of the people that, that Paul met there. What's interesting is this is oftentimes used as a, a great part of scripture to kind of describe and encourage people when it comes to evangelism, right? Because what does the apostle Paul do? He takes the very thing that he knows is most important to the people of Athens. Number one, they, they love nothing more than sitting around learning about the latest and greatest ideas. And Paul knows, I got one for you. You ain't heard this one yet. <laughs> this guy, Jesus, died and rose from the dead. And all everybody who believes in him is going to rise from the dead too. And so what do they do? This is their reaction. We want to hear more about this, right? We've never heard of a religion. We've never heard of somebody talking about a resurrection from the dead let alone having somebody who actually did it. Um, but, but then Paul also recognizes, and this is, I think, where the, the application for our culture and society today is just spot on. And that is, what is the line that Paul uses? He says, I noticed that in every way you are very religious. And what I think is, is interesting is you, you look at every kind of online statistic and people would say that, um, you know, postmodernism, um, especially kind of Western culture, is becoming less and less religious, which is a, a flat out lie. 
Um, the only thing they're basing that is how many, how many rear ends are sitting in a church pew on a Sunday morning. And they'll say, well, well that number has been going down since the 60s. Um, but that's not religion, right? Um, I, I don't know that we have ever lived in a more religious culture in the history of the world than in 21st century America. Now, that religion might not be found in a church, and its God might not be given some of the historical names like Jesus or, or Yahweh or, or Allah or, or Buddha. Um, but, but look around, watch the news, um, read, 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 a, read a story, an article, um, and, and anything and everything that you see. What, what, what do people call them these days? They call them causes right? What is the cause that you stand for? People put the sign in their front yard. They raise a flag up the flagpole. Um, they go on marches, right? Um, they boycott certain places or businesses. Why? What is driving that? These are not just causes. This is what religion does, right? Um, religion is, um, th this is people trying to justify themselves, it's trying to be found on the right side of history so that what they can either be remembered by people or they can be found in the presence of some God to be guiltless. Right. Um, I don't know that we've ever had more gods. I don't know that we've ever been more religious than the culture that you and I are in right now. And, and that presents a challenge, but I think it also presents an opportunity for us. And I'm kind of going a little off script here. But I think it presents a huge opportunity for us because what? Because they're going to run into the exact same thing that the Athenians did. And that is that none of these gods, none of these causes are ever going to be enough. The search is never going to stop. Um, and so what an opportunity for us, right, to be there waiting, saying, hey, you know that unknown God you've been looking for your whole life? Let me tell you a little bit about it, um, which is exactly what Paul does. Um, in verse 27, we learn about uh, the, the, we learn that God reveals himself naturally in creation so that people will want to find him and learn more about him. In other words, everybody has a chance to learn um, about the true God. Verse 27 was, um, you know, uh, Paul talking about how God made all people from one man, um, and he, he, he made sure they inhabited the whole earth, determined the times and places that they should live. Why? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So here's, here's Paul saying, in a very natural way, in a very um, uh, human, worldly kind of way, God reveals himself, and we're going to talk a little more about that on the next page. Um, the last bullet point there, even though his sermon is somewhat different than the other sermons Paul preached, his main point remains the same. And you kind of see that's how he gets to the point, right? What is the point that Paul wants to get to? He doesn't want to just offer them a new juicy piece of information. He actually wants to lead them to this man that has been appointed to be the judge over all. And God has proven that how by rising him, by raising him from the dead. So Paul still gets to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He still gets to the gospel. Um, and that is the point. 
And I love this too. This is how like almost every story in Acts ends. Most people laugh, reject it, but there's always a couple, right? Which I think is just another beautiful encouragement and reminder when we share our faith. You should probably almost expect the vast majority of people to laugh you off. But the Lord always finds a way to get a couple, right? So don't ever shy away from sharing your faith. Okay, thoughts or questions on that? Yep, that's it. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah, he, I mean, he does it right in certain places. Ephesus, obviously, was there a couple of years. But um, and yeah, a lot of times it was multiple Sabbaths that he was there. Right. But yeah, there it's like, all right, I'm out. Yeah. Um, right now, uh, a lot of discussion that I have with people, they they kind of shrug it off and say, well, yeah, OK, religion. No, but I'm spiritual. I mean, yeah. I get a lot of spiritual stuff. Yeah, ask them to, def to define it. That's the point. What does it mean, right? Because really what it is, is somebody who's saying to you, it, it's really sort of an, a universalistic approach, right? It's this. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Those are, those are present day Athenians. Because what are they saying? Well, who's your... Who's your God? Um, and they would say, well, I don't just have one. I'm not going to put all my, my eggs in that one basket. Um, but if there is a God, right, um, I'm not going to flat out say that I didn't believe that he or she or it existed. Um, this is, and this is how I kind of catch it, right? I say I'm spiritual. I've always sort of known you existed, right? I may never have gone to church. I may never have kind of committed to a religion. I'm not religious, meaning I don't go to church. I don't, I don't subject myself to any of these labels, Christian, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, Mormon, whatever. Um, but but I, I, uh, I like to think that there's something more to this life, right? I think that's probably in some way, shape, or form, people would say. You believe in this Jesus? Yeah, well, yeah. okay. We don't sure it it's 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 just another way that people that the the devil has convinced people that they can cover their bases right um yeah i might not have been all in on this but i i also didn't flat out reject it well yeah you did right you did that that's 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 what it's going to be um and that's kind of that's going to be sad and unfortunate um and so, uh, yeah, I, you know, a lot of times I, um, when people say I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, I say, you know what? So is the devil. Tell me some, tell me something else. If I'm supposed to be impressed by that, so is the devil, right? Um, so far, what you've told me is there's no difference between you and Satan. So maybe you want to clarify that a little bit for me. Right. Yeah. Good luck with it. Make sure you kind of know the person a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Early. Yeah. Make sure you're in a weapons free zone. That'll probably save you. All right. So let's move on to the, the natural knowledge of God in creation. I said there are three ways that we see God sort of reveal himself. Right. Here's the first one. Um, that. 
God has revealed himself in such a way that he, he allows people to know things about him just purely based on nature, right? Creation. Look a couple of the passages there. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. We talked about this back in our lesson on creation, right? Um, but, but I, you know, I just, it's so obvious, isn't it? It has to be obvious that, that you look at a building, you look at a structure and you say, somebody built that, right? That didn't just fall from the sky. That wasn't just a, the, the result of a massive windstorm or earthquake. That skyscraper was designed, it was built, it was meticulously planned, it was, it was taken care of. Um, how much more when you look out into the universe? And if you remember back in lesson three, that was one of those comments in that little short video clip we watched um, where even modern day scientists, I think, which more and more of them are, are leaving atheism and are at least sliding. And, and what you'll hear from most of them is the appearance of design is the, is the greatest argument to them. They don't know how to respond to that, right? Because even when they start lining up all of the parameters of everything that has to be exactly right and has to come into existence at exactly the same time, they go, whoa, I mean, they can't say it's impossible, but it almost takes more faith to believe in no God than it does to believe there is a creator, right? Um, and so this is one of the things as we look out into the vast universe, God says, I want you to see my handiwork, right? The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Um, likewise, when it comes to our, our own bodies, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist says. Um, just to study just one part, the eye, the ear, central nervous system of the body. Um, and, um, you know, people will talk about how the, the human body is just one of the great miracles in the world, right? And it's like, yep, yep, yep. And where does it come from, right? We see the existence. Um, Job talks about that, how he was knit together in the womb of his mother. This beautiful picture of this relationship between our creator um, and his creation. Finally, then Romans chapter one, um, the apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, men suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Um, Paul makes it very clear. Why is it that some people are atheists? Paul would say everyone is born at, at the very least some sort of uh, agnostic, right? This idea that we don't know who the true God is, but we do know that there is one, right? So how do you get to the point that of saying there is no God? Um, Paul says the way you do that is you suppress the truth, right? What our own bodies, what the creative world around us screams to us, that there is a divine creator. Um, you have to suppress that truth. Um, so um, the, you think about some things that, um, you think about some things that we learn about God from 
creation, right? The created world and universe tell me that there is a God who is kind, who is wise, who is powerful, who is creative, um, who is beautiful, right? All of these things we can, we can glean from the created world around us. Um, yes, Mitzi. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think most atheists, uh, whether they would recognize it or not, fall into one of two categories. Um, they're either an intellectual atheist, which sounds like probably what you know you were dealing with there, which is, you know, they would say, I've studied all the evidence. I've read all the books and I've come to this kind of, you know, logical conclusion. Um, I, I think you're, you're going to have a, a harder time probably dealing with someone like that just simply because that's someone who's suppressed the truth, right? That's somebody who has kind of arrived at that conclusion and, you know, probably for all intents and purposes have sort of in their mind shut down the conversation. Right, because what are they going to be looking for as kind of their evidence or proof that God exists? Right, it's going to be something that you can't offer them. Now, is it a waste of time to share the gospel with them? No, because the spirit still works. Right, but I think the, the and I think that's probably what most atheists think they are. Right, I've thought it all through. I've come to this conclusion. I've read what I need to read. I've studied what I need to study, and this is the kind of the result of that 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 thorough study. And when I say thorough study, a lot of times that's like half of a semester of a world religions class on some university campus. Um, but I think the vast majority of atheists, and I would say probably this might have even been um, what this lady was, even though she never would have admitted it. And that is their emotional atheists, which is they don't want God to exist. And the reason that I say that is because to, to get to the point of saying, right, that, oh, we should just eradicate the world of all of these Christians, that isn't something that you intellectually come to. Because like that, you know, even to just purely be a humanist, right, doesn't lead you to that. I mean, that's, that's Hitler-esque, right? And the most intellectual people would still say that was wrong. Um, but what can get you to that point? Emotion, hatred, rage. And, and, and so what, what brings a person to that point? Well, a lot of things. Um, and, and I think that's probably something where most atheists that I have dealt with over the years, you, you dig deep enough and you find out what it was. It was a moment where something really, really traumatic happened in their life or maybe a series of things um, and the only way that they could cope with it is to tell themselves, well, that's, be, you know, God allowed this to happen because God doesn't exist. And, and, and what I think is so ironic is you, you kind of want to ask people, why are you so upset with a God that you've convinced yourself doesn't exist? You can't have it both ways. Either you're pissed off at God, fine, but then at least acknowledge 
that he exists or say God doesn't exist and get over it. But the fact that there is kind of that emotional drain and, and frustration with people, I think just kind of reveals they're trying to suppress that truth, but they're not there yet, right? And that's where I found a lot of atheists, um, you know, you, you can make some, some inroads with them just patiently, kind of hanging out with them in their grief and in their misery um, and just showing to them the, the cross and the empty tomb. And to say, you know, you, you think that pain and suffering is the proof sufficient that God doesn't exist. What if I told you that very God is the God who knows greater suffering than you and I will ever experience? And was willing to suffer that hell itself, separation from his father, just at the chance that you might be saved. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's kind of where you get down into the weeds with people and you hold their hand and you just say, you know, walk with me for a minute. And let me point you to the greatest atrocity in human history. And it was done by this very God whom you think doesn't know or care about you and your suffering. either or right done well if somebody's thinking i'm suffering in my life because god is doing this to me he's allowing me to suffer right what i'm saying is the god who you think is separate from you doesn't care that you are suffering is the god that he himself has suffered beyond suffering for you right so the suffering has happened to him um to to rescue you from yours yeah Anyway, something like that. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. You know, sometimes it's, yeah, sometimes you just kind of have to know your, your context. You have to know the, the reality. You know, there have been times where, you know, I've been at a party and, you know, we're having a couple of drinks and somebody finds out I'm a pastor and they want to corner me. And I mean, I still remember some of the, you know, um, standing in someone's garage on Halloween night with kegs of beer everywhere, just being cornered by three guys who just want to rail against God. And I just kind of go, you know what? Not the time or the place, right? Um, and and not, not that I'm shying away from it, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to remember this in the morning. And I'd much rather just enjoy the evening with my friends um, than have this spiritual fist fight with you um you know just to say that i did so yeah yep yep yeah yeah now yeah be at peace right i mean i think you know sometimes in those situations it's just it's just nice to go up to somebody and say um you know i am a christian i heard what you said and i just want you to know that i'm going to pray that god blesses you with some peace in your life and then walk away um you know if anything, it'll just make her more upset, but at least she got to say something, right? Um, anyway. Yeah. All right. The second way, um, and this is interesting, right? The second way so that we see God reveals himself. First one we saw was by nature in the creation. Second one here we're going to talk about is in the human heart, in our conscience. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 2. 
when Gentiles do not have the law, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing them, now even defending them. This is another one of those. I mentioned kind of the, the argument against um, um, uh, evolution or atheism, right? The fine-tuning argument is one of those that scientists and atheists would say this is a tough one to come back from. Another one that I don't think is used quite as often because maybe people don't view it as being as strong, but another one of those is this kind of universal morality. It, it, it seems like the majority of people have kind of this common foundation of what is good and bad, or even the sense that there is such a thing as good and bad, and that it's not just cultural, that it is universal. How is it that all of us can look back on something like the Holocaust and universally say that was wrong? If there is no God, if there is no universal law giver, if there is no universal moral giver, then how can you categorically universally say anything is wrong? Right? Um, and so here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, how do you explain the fact that Gentiles who were not raised from the moment that they were on their parents' knee, were not raised with the Ten Commandments, how can you explain the fact that they still go, you know what? There's just something not right about walking up to a random stranger on the sidewalk and bludgeoning them to death. I don't know what it is, but that just doesn't seem right. Paul says, how is it that that, that that's true? Because he says, here it is. Because God doesn't just give his law on two stone tablets. He writes it in every human heart. And yes, you and I can harden our conscience. We can train our conscience. We can silence our conscience. We can numb our conscience. But we have to go through that process first, right? So, so if I start doing something that is sinful, and the first time I do it, I go, man, that really bothered me. But then I do it again tomorrow, and the day after, the day after that, eventually, guess what? It doesn't bother me anymore, right? So, so our conscience is not this infallible thing. Um, you know, uh, Geppetto um, talking to Pinocchio, always let your conscience be your guide. That's terrible theology, right? Um, but we should still be able to use our conscience to this degree to say that God has revealed himself in his moral code by writing it on every human heart. Um, Paul says, here it is. Gentiles who don't know the Ten Commandments still have this vague understanding that there is right and there is wrong in the world. Paul says, where does that come from if God himself has not written it in their heart? Okay. Um, another passage. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Um, th this is kind of the beginning of this, right? The fear of the Lord. Um, so you, you look at the, the conclusion there. Middle of page, my conscience tells me that there is a God. And what does it tell me? If, if there's this law, it tells me that God is just. And what does that mean? He punishes those who do wrong. So one of the examples that I use with people is, um, why is it 
that when you do something you know is wrong, but you do it in the presence of no one else, you do it in total and complete secrecy and no one else will ever find out unless you tell them you still feel guilty. Why? Because what is it that ultimately drives guilt in most people? It is the fear of punishment. But even when the fear of external punishment is removed, the guilt remains. Why? The explanation for that is because your heart knows that there is still someone who sees, who knows, who judges. Okay? All right. Um, thoughts, questions on that. The natural knowledge of God. Two ways. Creation, created world and order around us in our human heart, in our conscience. Two natural ways that God reveals himself and certain things about him. And yet, but we can look at this and say, that's incomplete, right? There's something missing here when it comes to the natural knowledge of God. You look back at the top and say, the created world and universe tells me that God is kind, wise, powerful. My conscience tells me that God is just. I can learn a lot about God just from my own conscience, just from the world around me. But what is missing? Some really important things, actually. Number one, who is this God, right? Again, essentially, we're all kind of brought into this world with our own altars made to the unknown God. I know there is a God. I know nothing about who he actually is. There's no name. There's no, there's no real kind of graspable, um, you know, how do I address him? How do I reach him? Um, and I would say even more importantly than not only who this God is, but ultimately then what he's done to save, right? Um, and so this is why when people tell me, I haven't had it really since I've been out here. I got it a whole lot more in Utah. Um, people would say, oh, pastor, you know, I, I know I wasn't in church on Sunday, but I was at my church. I was up skiing, right? I was out in God's country. Um, that's my church. And I say, all right, well, you let me know um, when the mountains start, you know, absolving you. Um, you, you let me know when the, when the trees and the, and the ski lifts start uh, giving you the, the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then I'll stop. I'll, I'll start leaving you alone. Right. Um, so it, it, these are the things, right. We can look at nature and we can say, yes, this is God is present. God is there, but he is not there for that very specific purpose and reason. Right. So this is why we need more. We need more than just the created world. We need more than just what's written in our conscience. And God gives us more in the Bible. This is kind of what we're leading up to, right? The, the third way that God reveals himself is really the ultimate, final, complete, to total way that God reveals himself. And that is in his word. Now, normally, uh, we spend a little time in this class watching a video. Um, and the name of the video here is on your screen. Um, it's called The Bible on Trial Beyond a Reason of Doubt. What I'm going to do is instead of watching here um, in class, I'm just going to encourage you to do it on your own time. I'm going to put a link to it um, in the uh, in the YouTube uh, video. I'll put it down below so you can click on it and find it. It's like 45 minutes. It's not a super long one. Um, but basically what it is, it's a, it's a, a Christian lawyer who says... Can we take the Bible and put it on trial just like we would in a normal court of law? And with what we know about the Bible, can we make the case that it is what it says it is? Can we make the case that the Bible is the living and active word of God? That it is true, that it is reliable, 
And there's a whole ton of things I would say if you struggle with, is the Bible really the word of God? Watch this. If you struggle with coming up with an answer to people who challenge you, why do you believe the Bible? How do you know the Bible is real? How do you know that it's reliable and true? Watch this video. Okay. It, it gives it gives very good historical, archaeological, scientific explanations for the reliability of the Bible, right? And I'll, I'll just, I'll give you one example. This is really, really cool. So back in the 1950s, what they still say, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in the modern world was the discovery um, in the Qumran caves, where they found all of the, you know, a bunch of scrolls from the Bible. One of the greatest of that was um, the, uh, a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, right? Um, what a lot of people don't realize is, is what they, not all the rest of them were scrolls. A lot of them, most of them even, were just fragments of um, papyrus or animal skins or whatever it was that they were written on. And then it was trying to put all of those pieces kind of like a giant puzzle back together. But what's interesting is, it's like, how did they do that? Um, they didn't just try and line up letters. They actually, because a lot of them were written on animal hides, they actually matched the DNA to them. So they'd take a little piece and they'd, they'd scan the DNA and then they'd scan other ones and they'd find the DNA that matched and then they could put them all back together. Um, it really is just kind of a, an amazing thing to consider. So there's stuff in there like that where, you know, I, I think it kind of gives you, um, I'm not going to say that it strengthens my faith in the reliability of the Bible, um, but I think it does kind of give you an ammunition when you when you get those people who say something like, well, the Bible, I mean, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. It's just like a thousand, two thousand year old telephone game. How can anybody trust it? That is utter nonsense, actually. Um, and if you want to know why, watch the video. Okay. Um, they will they will uh, talk about and go through the history um, of the people in the Qumran community um, who made those copies and the way that they made those copies. And then the guy sat down and made a copy of it and then passed it on to the next guy. And what he did was he had to count all of the letters, not just the words, not just the sentences, but had to make sure that the exact same number of letters were on the page that they were copied. And then he had to pass it to the next guy. And the next guy had to look and, 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 and wanted to see is the, is the very middle letter on the page the exact same middle letter on this page. And then they handed it to the next guy. And it's not like you just had a bunch of people who were like, oh, ho-hum, whatever happens. You know, if I get a couple words wrong, if I add a couple things in here, I change this. No, that is not the way it happened. Very meticulous. Um, so, uh, like I said, I'll put that in the... Uh, in the uh, the link if you want it before then i'll put it on sometime next week but if you want it before then let me know i'll text you the link it's on youtube it's free um you can watch it so yeah 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 everybody in the church yeah Regardless of denomination. Yeah. Right. Now, in our church, we have Right. Yeah. So it may be all right now. What's going to happen? Sure. 
Well, number one, I would say pray um, that our church body continues to maintain that their pastors are taught Greek and Hebrew, because that is something that is going by the way of the dinosaur, because as the number of pastors shrinks, um, we have to try and find easier ways to recruit. And what is probably the biggest hurdle for most guys who consider, at least in our church body, um, what is the, the number one hurdle? Guys will say, well, I'm terrible at languages, so I can't be a pastor. And so the temptation is there. And I would say that it's probably more rare these days that a pastor is, I don't want to say fluent, but, but can get his way around the original Greek and Hebrew. Um, I would say that that's probably more rare nowadays, whereas 50 years ago, it wasn't, right? Um, so I would say pray that that still maintains a priority in our church body um, so that uh, that's one of those encouragements, right? Because then no matter how many translations come out, right? Um, that's one of the things we'll talk about at the end of this lesson, kind of how do you pick and choose a good a good translation? There's really going to be kind of two things we're going to look at, right? And, and so within that, there are going to be a number of different ones. Um, and I'll have my preference and you'll have your preference. And I think that's part of the beauty um, of uh, a, a book, a Bible, the word that is living, right? Um, and, and, and yet we, you know, this is going to be the, the two things we're going to look at. We, we don't want to stray from it to the degree that it no longer is what it was, right? Um, but I think you know, I'm glad we're still not using the King James. Um, just from the perspective that, you know, when I would get, especially when I would get people who were kind of coming out of Mormonism and they would say, well, pastor, I want to start reading the Bible. And I, and I would say, okay, um, have you ever done it before? And they'd say, yeah, I tried once, but I never got past the begats. And, and this is of course the part in Genesis when you've got kind of the, the genealogy and it's so-and-so was the father of so-and-so and he lived 200, 500, 800 years and then he died and then he gave birth to this. And then, but in King James, because this is what Mormons have to read, right? It was so-and-so begat so-and-so. Um, we, just, we just don't talk like that. And so I think one of those main things when it comes to finding a good translation of the Bible is readability. Um, and and I don't, you know, you're right, because as much as language changes, this becomes a difficult thing. There are words now in Webster's Dictionary that if you had asked me 20 years ago, you think this is ever going to be a real word? No. And now it is. Um, that's going to be tough, right? And yet, I would still say, um, as, as language evolves, um, the truth of the word of God doesn't, but the way that we communicate it can. The way that we communicate the word of God can, can update, can change with the way that you and I communicate, right? Um, so we're still saying the fundamental foundational truths of God's word, but the way in which we share them, right, um, can change with the way that we use language. Um, 
And that's going to be a challenge. That's always going to be a challenge for God's people. This is why, I mean, my dad was going through the seminary when the NIV was first coming out. And I, man, you talk about church wars, right? I mean, you know, some people talk about how hard it is to change from a, an old hymnal to a new hymnal. Imagine going from an old Bible to a new Bible. I mean, that just tore families apart. Um, so I, I, you know, and I, I'm kind of happy that um, we, we don't really have that anymore. But at the same time, yeah, it's not a bad concern to have to say, I'm a little concerned about how loose, how loosely can we get away from the original and still have the word of God, right? That's something that we should always wrestle with God's people. Yeah. What's that? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the message. That's that's the cliche one where it's just, you know. Yeah, don't read that one. Um, there, are, there are better ones out there. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, this is kind of a, a good place to stop. Um, like I said, I'll, I'll send that out. We'll get more into the actual Bible itself next week. We'll learn that the Bible is uh, the claims it makes about itself. It's all sufficient, authoritative, clear, verbally inspired. What does that mean? Um, we'll look at some things about uh, interpretation, stuff like that. So um, thanks for uh, for coming tonight. And uh, hopefully I gave you a couple things to take home. And we'll look forward to uh, seeing you next week. All right. Thanks, everybody.